book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. That's Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for me to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Hi, Nairhoff. It's good to see all of you, and Merry Christmas once again to all of you. If you are visiting with us, um, we're really glad for that. We're, we're, we're happy that you're here with us, and we look forward to getting to know you. We are right now in, in, at the tail end of a sermon series entitled The Long Awaited, which has been all about Advent. And Advent, as I've said many times before, simply means arrival, or it means the coming. And so when we celebrate Advent as a church, what we're celebrating is the fact that Jesus Christ has come he has arrived, but we're also looking ahead to the fact that he will come again. He will arrive one more time. The first time he arrived, he arrived in fulfillment of many, many prophecies, many, many promises that, that, that God gave to his people and that are recorded for us in the scriptures. He came and fulfilled those promises with his arrival. He lived and he died. A substitutionary death, that, that is, he died in the place of people like us, for people like us. And he rose from the dead. And after rising from the dead, he ascended back to heaven. But the fact is that the Bible doesn't only promise that Jesus would come once, it promises that he would come again. The first time he came, he came to live and die. The next time he will come to rule. Not to suffer and die, but to reign and to rule. So here's what we've been seeing as we started out this Advent series, the long-awaited. We started out by seeing that in the very early pages of the scriptures, we have the beginnings of the Christmas story. Because what we see there is a perfect world that God had created. People who had been created to live and enjoy open, transparent relationship with God in a perfect environment. That's what we see. But we also see that very early on in the history of that couple that were created, there's a fall. There's sin. And as a result of sin, there's death. There's a fracturing in the relationship between them and their God. And not only that, but the perfect creation in which they were placed to live, that perfect creation becomes imperfect. That's an understatement. Like John said before, that, that perfect creation became dark. It became broken. And we live in the midst of that brokenness even now. And so what we saw in that first week of Advent is that because of sin and because of the death that was brought on by sin, that's why we need a Savior. 
That's why we needed God to send a rescuer to come into this world and set all things right. And that desire for a savior is a yearning, it's a longing that resides deep in our hearts whether we recognize it or not. Whether you recognize it or not, we all want someone to make things right. We want someone to make us right. We want someone to make this world what it was always meant to be. But then from there, what we went on to see is that God promised that he would send someone to rescue and to make things right. And we saw in the second week of Advent that, that not only does he tell us that he's going to send the Savior, but he tells us about who that Savior is going to be. He, he reveals to us what that Savior is going to be like. And then later in the third week of Advent, what we saw is that that Savior actually came. He arrived in fulfillment of all those promises and all those prophecies. But he arrived in humility. He arrived as a baby. In, in pretty nondescript, pretty spartan environment. In a manger. And he grew up to be rejected. He grew up to be abused. He grew up to eventually be killed. And yet, and yet... All that humility is displayed to us in the, in the first coming of Christ, but yet in that first coming of Christ, we also see his majesty. We see that he is the God who, yes, would lay down his life for his people, but would also take it back up again. He would rise from the dead, raise from the dead on the third day, and ascend to his Father's side in heaven. So what are we looking at today? Because really, if we look at all what we've seen already, you might say, well, that's the end of the story, isn't it? We sinned. We need a savior. God sent a savior. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again. End of story. What more is there to this whole Christmas thing? Well, the fact is that that's not the end of the story. There is, in fact, more. And it's packed into these verses that Jen just read to us a moment ago. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is one other promise that we get in the scriptures. This Jesus who lived and he died amongst you and rose from the dead will one day return. He will one day return. That's part of the Christmas story. I think we often lose sight of it. But the fact is that all the rest of what happens that we celebrate at Christmas really becomes meaningless. At the, at, at the very least, it's incomplete and ineffective apart from the return of this king the return of Jesus Christ. He arrived humbly the first time, a helpless child, but he will return as a king to set all things right, to, to make justice reign, to judge all those who have rejected him as king on the one hand, but also to eradicate sin and to eradicate all the effects of sin. To, to, to bring into existence what the Bible calls in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. That, 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 that's, that's a shorthand for saying Everything made new. Everything that we see and don't see, everything that we can touch and not touch, all the created order all around us, renewed and restored to what it was meant to be at the very beginning. This is the promise that's packed into these words when these messengers, these mysterious men in white robes, say to the apostles in Acts 1, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. His arrival will be momentous, it'll be epic, but what he does once he arrives will be even more epic because he will make all things new. In fact, the reason I say this is part of the Christmas story is because we sing about it even in our Christmas songs. 
Perhaps you've sung Joy to the World. It's one of my favorites to sing around Christmas. But this is what one of the verses in Joy to the World says. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see what we're singing about there? We're singing about something that really hasn't happened yet. We still live in a world filled with thorns and thistles. There's still pain and there's still discomfort and there's still difficulty. There's still blood, sweat, tears. But he comes and he will return a second time in order to do this, to make his blessings flow as far as this curse is found. He will eradicate the curse that we are under because of our sins. In fact, he will replace the curse with all-out blessing. It's a vital aspect of the Christmas story. But as we talk about this, as we talk about the return of Jesus, I'm guessing that, that the reactions might vary to that. Even in this room, I think that some of us react differently to that. Some of you hear about Jesus coming back and you believe it, and maybe you're moved to say, yes, come Lord Jesus, before the weekend's over, if, if possible. But others are more like, you know, that's, that's really weird. I mean, it's one thing for us to celebrate the coming of God in the form of a baby. That's weird enough as it is, but it's been so ingrained into Western culture that it's become kind of normalized. Like, like you get a pass on celebrating that sort of thing, as strange as it might be. But this, this perhaps strikes us as even weirder, that this same baby would return, not as a child, but as a mighty king in glory and power and majesty. That the, that the heavens will one day, the sky will be rent open, torn open like a curtain, and the king of the universe will step into our reality to restore and renew this reality. Some of us think that's weird and it's hard to get our minds around, and if that's where you're at, I, I get that. I think I do. I can understand to some degree why it's so hard to embrace that as, as truth. I pray that if that's where you are, that, that, that God will change your mind. Frankly, I can understand that response. But here's the response that doesn't make sense to me. And it's the response that many of us, if, you're, if you identify yourself as a Christian and a follower of Jesus, as I do, then this is the, this is the response that I don't understand. It's to believe that Jesus is coming back, and yet to not let it affect how we live. To know that Jesus is coming again, and, and, and at the same time, to live as if things will always be as they are now. That doesn't make sense. That's absurd. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that's where we often are. That's the space we often live in. Yeah, I believe he's returning. It's not necessarily affecting the way that I walk out my life today, my relationships, my work. I, I don't live, we often do not live awake to the reality that Jesus is coming back as the king to finally rescue, to make things right, to reign. And Jesus knows that's our tendency. He knows us well enough, and that's why again and again in the scriptures, he reminds us that he's returning. Do you know that he talks about this often? Jesus does. The Bible itself speaks often, 300 plus times, the return of the Messiah is mentioned in the scriptures. Because he knows that we need to be reminded. And he knows that this is such a vital aspect of the gospel message that if we miss it, then we really lose the gospel. 
And he knows that because we don't live in the light of the fact that he will one day return, he knows that that causes us to, to experience discouragement. It causes us to experience um, complacency. It causes us to, to experience depression and all kinds of fear and anxiety. It causes us to live in the way that he's not called us to live. He knows that that's what happens until he comes and says, I'm going to remind you again and again. I'm coming back. So where I want us to end today is asking this question. What does it look like for me to live awakened to this part of the Christmas story? Awakened to Christ's promise to turn. Uh, a Scottish pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, he says, when Jesus speaks about the future, his words are meant to change the way we live in the present. You see, so when the Bible talks about Jesus' return, it's not meant to just satisfy curiosity in us or to spark controversy. Sometimes we take this idea that Jesus is coming back. It's taught clearly in the scriptures. And, and what do Christians do with it? Sometimes we take it as an opportunity to get into all kinds of debates, all kinds of, in some cases, confusing and in some cases discouraging controversies over the details of what this is going to look like or when it's going to happen. And we start batting around terms like the tribulation and the rapture and the millennium. And if you don't know what those mean, that's okay. Many of those that bat these words around don't know what they mean either. But the fact is that when Jesus talks to us, when the Bible talks to us about his return, it's not meant to inspire controversy and debate and argument. It's meant to bring us hope. And it's meant to change the way that we live in the present. How do we live in light of the fact that this Jesus is returning? I just want to give you three ways that have been impressed upon me and my conscience for us as a church. There's much more that can be said. Really, we can, we can talk forever about the ways that we should live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. I just want to give you three. The first one comes out of this passage that Jen read to us. Because Jesus is coming back, we are called to bear witness. We're called to bear witness. Look at what Acts 1, verse 6 says. It says, so when they, and that's the apostles, these are the apostles that had spent countless hours and days and months with Jesus. After he has died, after he has risen from the dead, they're reunited with their Savior who miraculously has a body and skin and bones and is walking among them, even though they saw him dead three days earlier. Or really, at this point, it would have been much more than that. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to make things right, Lord? Are you going to set things right the way it's always been promised that you would? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. Don't get caught up with times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so what, is a, what do witnesses do? Witnesses tell stories, don't they? Witnesses tell, about, tell others about what they have observed. Witnesses tell others about what they've experienced. Witnesses tell others about what they know to be true firsthand. The apostles were called to be witnesses. A particular special kind of witness, no doubt. 
But this is true for any of us that call ourselves disciples of Christ. Any of us who are fathers of Jesus. And look, look, at, look at what it says here. It says, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, this conversation happened right in the region of Jerusalem. And so he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses here at home, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, that is, that is a, 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 think, think increasingly larger concentric circles. You're going to be my, my, my witnesses here, but not just here. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and even really to the furthest ends the world. He's saying, you will be my witnesses everywhere. And that's one of the reasons we know that what he's saying there isn't just applied to those, that, that small group of 11 apostles. It applies also to his church, to us. We are tasked with being witnesses to Jesus. Where we live, in our immediate context, in a slightly larger context, and really even to the end of the world. And we do this as individuals, we're called to. We're also called to do this as a church. This has to do with how we engage our neighbors as an individual, telling them about who Jesus is, but it also has to do with how we engage others through the ministries of our church, even in far off places, like Taiwan, Namibia, and elsewhere. Through our prayerful support, even through our financial support, those things aren't meaningless. Those things are a way, a means by which we are bearing witness. You are bearing witness as you pray for and support and encourage and facilitate the ministries of other witnesses all over the world. But it's also about bearing witness to one another. And I think this is something we lose sight of. One of the ways in which God has called us to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done is by reminding one another of who Jesus is and what he's done and that he will one day return. You know, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is talking about this very topic, the return of Jesus. And, he, and he, he's correcting some, 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 he's correcting some, some misguided ideas that the church had about the return of Christ. And he says at the end of that section, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these things. He says it to the church. He says it to us. Encourage one another with this very fact that Jesus Christ will come back to make all things new. It, it means reminding one another of his promises. Do we do that? Do you remind your brothers and sisters, your family members, your care group members? Do you remind people, look, this is what Jesus has said he will do and he will do it. Do you remind them of who he really is and the fact that he's coming back? When was the last time you did that? You might say, well, the people in my life, they all know that. We all believe the same thing. They all know that. Oh, Jesus knows that we know it. He knows that we also need to be reminded constantly of that. Your brothers and sisters need to be reminded that all will not be as it is now. That the suffering they are experiencing, the loneliness and corruption and brokenness they see in their own lives and around them will not stay. It's not the end of the story. Cancer and joblessness and orphanhood and rape and brokenness of every sort will not have the last word. We need to be reminded of this, and we need to remind one another of it. 
But the return of Christ doesn't just, doesn't just mean that we're witnesses. There's a second way that affects the way we live. The return of Christ calls us to work. So it calls us to witness, but it also calls us to work. Here's what I mean. Um, this coming week, many of you are going back to work. Um, maybe it's Tuesday, maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe you're going back to the office or wherever it is that you were. The fact is that for many of Christ's, our earliest disciples, it was the same thing. Those shepherds who saw Jesus in the manger still had to go be shepherds the next day. Many of his disciples who saw him after he had risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, still had to turn around the next day and go back to the, the vineyard or the marketplace. They had to go back and fish and plant and sell and buy and do their business. And just like them, many of us, we got to go back to the classroom, in the office, in the library, or your home, or the hospital, or wherever it is that you work. And the fact is that most of us see very little of any connection between the work that we're going to be doing this coming week and the return of Christ. For many of us, there's like this disconnect. What do the two have to do with each other? Or maybe you feel like if you really embrace this idea that Jesus is in fact coming and his return is imminent, and when he comes he's going to make all things new, you might say, well, then my work doesn't really matter at all, does it? What I do from Monday to Friday seems kind of irrelevant. I mean, if Jesus is coming back after all anyway. But here's the truth, guys. Here's the truth. The return of the king is meant to change the way that we work. It's meant to change the way that you work. And I'm not just trying to say that, I'm not just trying to pressure you to be a witness in your workplace. Like, hey, go back to work on Tuesday, tell everybody about Jesus. That's not all I'm trying to do, really at all. Because the fact is that your workplace is not just a mission field. It's not just a place for you to be a witness. Your workplace is a place for you to honor God by using your energy and your gifts to serve others, to serve him, in light of the fact that he will one day return. Listen, Jesus loves this world. That's why he's committed to restoring and renewing it. Jesus loves people. That's why he's committed to this mission to, to rescue people. So as you engage in your work all week long, Whatever it is, if you are doing it for him, with dependence upon him, and your work lines up with his mission, then it's eternally significant and meaningful. So, as Jenny's in the classroom teaching kids, or as Jeff, Jeff's not here, but as he's protecting neighborhoods, as, as, as Ben is performing critical lung surgeries, they are very much in line with and on mission with this Jesus who is all about protecting and nurturing and rescuing. They are, their jobs connect very much with the fact that Jesus is coming back to complete and perfect the very kinds of work 
that they're doing. But you might say, Rob, you kind of pick, you kind of pick the hero jobs, you know, teaching kids and saving lives in the operating room and protecting streets as a police officer. It's pretty clear that those jobs line up if you're doing them well with Christ's mission. But how about the rest of us? We're not all saving lives and teaching the young youth and we're not all necessarily protecting the streets from criminals, are we? Many of us are doing work that doesn't seem all that relevant. Well, the fact is, Jesus Christ's mission is to eradicate injustice, unfairness, exploitation. When he returns, he will eradicate laziness and unfair business dealings. You are working very much in line with the desires and the missions of the returning king if you are doing your work, seeking to do it with excellence, seeking to avoid those temptations to exploit, to use, fighting against that, that impulse to be motivated by greed, fighting off the impulse to give in to slothfulness, the kind of slothfulness that, that actually robs your employer. You see, as you, as, you, as you work according to Christ's values, you're actually very much in line with his desires and his mission. And it makes your work very valuable, very important, and very pleasing to him, to the king whose values you're living out in the workplace, whether you're saving lives or you're creating spreadsheets or anything in between. It's all significant. In fact, more than that, listen to what, I love the way the book of Colossians puts it. In Colossians 3, 23, it says, whatever you do, think about that. Plug your work into that, okay? Plug your job, and not just the job title, but the tedious things that you need to get done every single day. Think about the most tedious, the one that you feel like is the most insignificant and you wish you didn't have to do, but you just have to do because it's part of your job description right now in life. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. No, wait, why? Why can you do that? Why can we? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see that, guys? This brings significance to whatever work we're doing. Look, Connected with the return. Look, if Jesus is returning as king, then every little thing that you do as an act of service to him is important. It's received. It's celebrated by him. It's appreciated by him. It's enjoyed by him. It matters and it has eternal significance. And I believe that if we really embrace that, then it will change the way that we view our work. It has to. So the return of Christ doesn't only change the way that we live as witnesses. It's meant to change the way that we work. Seeing every act as an act of service to him. And every, and every honest effort to use whatever gifts and opportunities God's given you right now to serve others and to serve him, to see that as, man, that pleases my king who's returning. And when he returns, there will be an inheritance of a there's a third way, a final way that I believe. 
we should live in light of the return of Jesus. And it's this. We're called to wait, wait fully. To wait, wait fully. I want to I point you to this passage in the book of Mark, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13 says, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. And he says, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Just by way of context, he's talking about his return. He says, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to you all, stay awake. Do you hear any kind of repeated themes there? They tell you when you're a public speaker that you shouldn't use the same words over and over again too much because um, it, it becomes monotonous. Jesus says stay awake just in these words, in these verses that I read to you four times. And if we leave the larger context, you'll, you'll see it more often than that. Why does he keep saying stay awake? Because he knows that we're so prone to sleepiness when it comes to waiting for his arrival. We're, 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 we're tempted towards this kind of drowsiness that, 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 that causes us to live in such a way as if He's returning, but we don't know when. And is he really? And what does it really matter? Have you ever stayed awake to wait for someone who's coming home? Who you miss desperately? Maybe that person went away on a trip, and they're coming home, and they say, I'll be there soon. You can go to bed. And when he says, no, I'm not going to bed. Or maybe you say, yeah, I'll go to bed, but you know you're not going to. You're going to wait. Maybe you wait by the window. All right, that's a little melodramatic. Maybe you don't wait by the window. But you sit in the living room, and you make yourself stay awake because you want to see that person's face. Staying awake, watching wakefully, it means remembering and living in the light of this gospel truth. He is returning. And the knowledge of that is meant to, it's meant to change the way that we do and see everything. You see, again, if we really believe that Christ is returning and we're watching, waitfully, waiting watchfully for that, it's not meant to make us disengage from everything else in life. Like, I'm not going to do it. I, I don't have time for anything else because I'm just waiting for Christ's return. It's not that at all. But it's meant to change the way that we engage everything that we do in life. For instance, shouldn't it change the way that we view sin and holiness? Shouldn't it engage the way that shouldn't it change the way that we engage in the, the process of witnessing to others? As I said before, it'll change the way that we're working. For one thing, I believe that if we're waiting, wakefully for Christ's return, it'll change the way that we deal with our suffering and the way that we deal with others' sufferings. Some time ago, I was, I was visiting a woman in a hospital room who I didn't know very well. I was asked by a friend to go visit her, and so I did. And this woman had just had surgery, and I didn't, I didn't know exactly how to encourage her because, again, I didn't know her very well. But I knew she was scared, and I knew she was weak, and I knew that she was also in a good deal of pain. 
And, and after we talked about all that, I read these words to her from Isaiah chapter 40. It says there, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not be faint. I'm not even sure exactly why I landed on that for those particular verses to read to her. But I know this, that as I read them to her, it, it hit me. That if the second coming of Christ is not a reality, then everything I just said to her is empty. It, it's just a hallmark card. It's just one of those encouraging, inspirational posters on an office wall. A cliche. But because the second coming is real, and these words become powerful. They speak to us of a future reality that doesn't make the present easy, but it does make present sufferings pale in comparison to what's ahead. And, and, and the truth packed into those words can empower us, in the words of James 5, to, to be patient until the coming of the Lord. We can't be patient until the coming of the Lord. We'll be crushed and depressed and discouraged or frantic or scared or just bored and discontent. But we won't be patient until the coming of the Lord unless we embrace this as true, that the Lord is the everlasting God and he is coming back. And when he comes back, he will give power to the faint and he will increase strength. And if we wait for this Lord, we shall, he shall renew us. Cancer, depression, and racism, and joblessness, and addiction, and abuse, and terrorism, and poverty, they don't have the last word. Some of you are suffering. Maybe, maybe it's joblessness, maybe it's illness, maybe it's loss. Maybe it's rejection. Jesus' words are for you. Some of you have been suffering for a very long time. Or perhaps you're suffering in such a way that when these holiday seasons come around, it just amplifies it. It just makes it worse. The loneliness feels sharper. The sadness feels darker. In one sense, you'd say, no one understands what I'm going through. No one really gets what I feel like right now. And maybe you're right. But Christ comes and says, yes, I know. I know. Christ understands and is committed to make it right for you. What he calls you to is to trust him. To see him as Savior and Lord. And to trust that not only did he come and die for you, but he will return to make things right. You know, on another level, in one sense you could say, like, no one really gets exactly what I'm going through right now. But on another level, all of creation understands what you're going through. All of under the creation understands what it means to live under the, the burden of suffering and brokenness. Because Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. All of creation is waiting for this return of the king. 
The Bible talks in these awesome, these awesome metaphor. I don't even know if they're metaphorical or literal, but I know this. The Bible talks about the fact that upon the return of the king, the mountains will celebrate and the trees will clap their hands. Creation itself longs for the return of this ruler. And not only creation, Romans 8.23 says, but we ourselves, we are groaning, all of us, in different unique ways for the return. Because we know that life is not what it was meant to be. And, and here's the thing, guys, and here's why. I end up, I find it over the past couple of months, maybe I've been talking a lot about the return of Christ, and, and, and part of the reason I've been talking to myself about it, to others about it, part of the reason is because I believe that as Christians, we are meant to be future-oriented. It's true that we're meant to look back to what Jesus has done for us, yes. But what Jesus has done for us in the past is meant to strengthen us and reorient us towards the future so that we can look at the future with expectation and hope. Yearning and groaning, it's, it's painful imagery. But, but it's not just painful, it's, it's expectant and it's hopeful. It's not resigned, it's not cynical or discouraged. There's a, an old Christian document called the Heidelberg Catechism, which if you can get your hands on, of course you can get your hands on, just look it up online. It's a beautiful document filled with questions and answers that teach you about who God is and what he has done for us. It's beautiful. It's, I love it. But in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 52 says this, What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In other words, it's saying, what does it matter that Jesus is coming back to you? What's the relevance of this truth for you? And here's the answer. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. You see, you see how your guilt and your suffering are brought together here. How they're both answered, not only in the cross, past tense, but in the promised return, future tense. There's comfort in that. The fact is, like I said before, we're not, we go sleepy to that. We're not going to groan, we're not going to yearn, unless we're awake to that future reality. We can grow resigned and hopeless. Especially if we're not suffering. Especially if we're not suffering. I'm gonna, I want to read to you this quote. It's the last quote I'll read to you. But it's from Cornelius Plantinga. I think it's going to project up here. But Cornelius Plantinga says this. He's a philosopher. He says, When our own kingdom has had a good year, we aren't necessarily looking for God's kingdom. In other words, when things are going pretty good for you, you're not necessarily saying, Jesus, come back. When life is good, redemption doesn't sound so good. That's how things go. God's redemption is good news for people whose life is bad news. You hear that? If you're a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or a slave in antebellum Mississippi, you want your redemption. If you're an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, you want your redemption. Or I'd add, if you're a Syrian refugee looking for a home, fleeing from death, you want your redemption. 
The second coming of Jesus, says Plantinga, means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth. When we're comfortable, that doesn't sound so urgent. So Plantinga, he goes on to say, he says, maybe we should yearn for others, even as you seek their good. Even if you're having a pretty good year, or you had a pretty good year, and things are okay. encourage those who aren't with this very truth. Staying awake is praying, your kingdom come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Reminding yourself that he will follow through. Our kids need this kind of encouragement, I'm finding. And it's not just our kids, each other, we all need it. We all need to be reminded of this truth. Just recently, we were driving in the car together on our way to who knows where, and the, the, the topic of heaven, or as the Bible puts it, the new heavens and the new earth came up. Kids started asking all, kind of, all kinds of questions about what's it gonna be like when Jesus returns, and what's this gonna look like, and what's that gonna look like? And I found that we found, we found ourselves speculating, and it was a fun conversation, and it was an interesting conversation, but I found that more than speculation, what was helpful for us is the encouragement side of that. It's one thing for us to say, you know, as a kid, hey, I really love ice cream. Is heaven going to be not going to have, like, you know, full, constant access to ice cream? Because that sounds pretty cool. Of course, the scriptures have nothing to say about any of that. As my kids start to speculate and imagine what heaven could be like and what the return of Christ might look like, I found myself, in one sense, having to rein their imaginations back in, but in another sense, set their imaginations loose. Because on the one hand, I wanted to rein their imagination back in and say, hey, listen, listen, let's, let's see what the Bible tells us about what the new heavens and the earth would look like. It doesn't talk about fun, fun, fun all the time, time, time. But it does talk about an end to all that is wrong with this world. And so I said, let's go back to Genesis and let's see what existence was described like there. Now imagine that, only better. Imagine all the good things that are going on in your life, and then take away, take away all the sin, and all the pain, and all the disappointment that stains all this stuff. Think about what it looks like to live in a world where every judgment, every governmental act, is righteous, and just, and perfect, and right on time. This is what Jesus does promise us. Maybe it's not a world where all our dreams come true, but it's a world where God's perfect vision, and if I might say it, his perfect dream for what this world would look like, is reality. This is promised to us, and we're called to live in the light of it, to witness, to work, and to wait wakefully for that day. Let's pray and ask God to go help us to do that. Lord, we thank you that at Christmas we get to celebrate the fulfillment of your promise. But Lord, we also want to sit here groaning, in a sense, waiting for, for you to come fulfill all of them for us. You've told us that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not pass away. And so we're, we're staking everything on your promise. Awaken us so that we will look to the future with expectancy, with hope, 
So that just as your people of old sat and waited for the, for the Messiah to come, we would yearn and wait for him to return. Help us to live in line with that and in the light of all that. Even as we celebrate the rest of this holiday together. In Jesus' name, amen.